0: Hello, and welcome to another episode of Lost in Sciences, half an hour on your radio, where we talk about science things. My name's Stu, and on this week's show, I thought I would uh, tackle the news story about cockroach milk. Uh, and cockroach milk, you know, being the next superfood that we're all going to be nope. paying heaps and heaps of money for. Nope. Um, and yeah, so I just delved a little bit deeper into that and found. The truth behind the story. Yeah, so you might think that's a bit gross about cockroach milk, but you might be surprised about what the real story behind that is. Chris. What have you got for us this week?
1: Right. Well, um, a few months ago, I talked about how there were rumours of a new particle that may have been discovered at uh, in Switzerland, and I thought I'd follow that up to let you know the happy news that, well, the sad news, sorry, that there was no new particle. Um, so we have to look elsewhere for new physics, and we'll talk a bit about where there might be hints of new mm. physics, new discoveries Intrigued. awaiting us.
0: Yeah. Happy, sad, it's all relative. That's right. Yeah. Happy, happy, joy, joy. Manisha.
2: Hi. Um, okay, so today I have a bit of depressing news, actually. So maybe to follow on to uh, Chris's slightly sad story. Um, I'm going to be talking about the Bramble Key uh, malomus, which is this poor little rodent Australian native species that has recently gone extinct. And I'm just going to talk about that.
0: Not another one.
2: Oh, okay. So this one's unique because it's actually gone extinct due to um, anthropogenic climate change, so human caused climate change. So it's the first the casualty first, of climate first, change. Yeah, the first mammal casualty, and oh. it happened right here in Australia. So leading that- leading the
0: world in climate change Ma- yeah. Uh, extinctions. Yeah, uh, more of that later in the show. Stay tuned. So, oh, Manisha, what do you pour on your cereal in the morning?
2: Normal normal cow milk.
0: <laughs> normal cow milk. From a normal cow. <laughs> you may have seen headlines recently that cockroach milk is going to be the next superfood. Um, I've seen stories on news.com, uh, on SBS, and even the fashion magazine Marie Claire ran a story about... Cockroach milk. Oh. Let's face it, if you can even make that almost a thing that is quite a news story.
1: I mean, that is gets your attention. If you want to sell news clicks, then that's a it, that's the way to go. It makes
0: great clickbait. Yeah. Like the noise that cockroaches make oh, when they're under the fridge. No, click, 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 no, click. no, no. When they're going for the cockroach bait. Yeah, when they're going for the cockroach bait. Now supposedly cockroach milk is being studied by scientists as a high protein superfood for humans, which will be consumed in all sorts of ways. Possibly, according to one article, by hipsters in their blue algae lattes in cafes around the country. Now, it all sounds a bit weird and possibly a bit gross for the average punter. Who, who prefers possibly, their milk yeah. to come from something large and mooing. Or possibly from soybeans. Uh, some people oh, yeah. prefer soy in their or coffees. Almonds. Or, or almonds. Or almonds, yeah. See, these yeah. are
2: normal things that milk should these are, come These from. are
0: foodstuffs. Is that yeah. what you're saying? Yeah. Yeah. yeah.
2: Oh. But look, out right now.
0: just to put everyone's mind at rest, we can stop worrying about drinking insect milk anytime soon, because in essence, the story is pretty much not true in any conceivable way. Um, cockroaches, for a start, don't produce milk, obviously. Mammals produce milk, and milk substitutes like soy are called milk. It's all in the marketing, because they're repl- you're saying, you know, replace your milk with this product. Um, but... You know, cockroaches usually don't have live young, so they don't hang around and feed them milk. But this
1: particular species of cockroach does have live young, isn't that correct?
0: That is correct. The Pacific Beetle Roach, or uh, Diploptera punctata, does nourish its young internally.
2: Sorry. <laughs>
0: <laughs> that was quite a loud bang. Um, Diploptera Punctata does nourish its young internally, unlike most insects, which, as I said, hatch from eggs. Yeah. So the this specific beetle roach holds its young inside and feeds it, nourishing fluids.
1: I find that kind of gross as well, A live
0: I cockroaches
2: like, being born, you know?
0: inside A live cockroach inside a mother cockroach. Yeah. This
2: whole story is making me really well, look, uncomfortable. The
0: nourishment does come in a fluid form, which makes sense, as cockroach larvae are about as skilled at chewing as baby everything you know Mm -hmm. they're not very good at chewing things so it's got to be in a liquid form um so it's easy for them to swallow it's also easy to transport around the body of a cockroach to actually deliver it to where the baby cockroach is but as a source of human nutrition it would be severely lacking it's missing two essential amino acids for a start that humans absolutely need and can't make ourselves so as as a superfood replacement for something it's not particularly good. Ah, oh, well, depending on what it's replacing, though. Well, if you're replacing milk, milk has the amino acids that we does it, need. Does it, so
1: okay. that's, that's, there are a lot of foods that don't have all the nutrients. Yeah, yeah we that's need. true. That is yeah.
0: true. Um, but also, another issue to consider is that cockroach allergies are really common. Um, cockroach allergies? Yeah. They're the second most common arthropod-related allergy behind dust mites, oh. which makes them the most common insect allergy is cockroaches. Um, that makes them a pretty bad choice for food, if you yeah. think about it. Hmm. Um, more how people do you allergic to cockroaches.
2: Like cockroach milk? Like how? How would it be, be come in a jar? Like how would I get a glass of it? Well, how would cockroaches go into it? Here's,
0: here's the thing: nobody's actually looking at milking cockroaches yeah. in any way. <laughs> but scientists are studying. They're looking for volunteers, if you want. <laughs> <laughs> Scientists are studying cockroach milk, uh, and they're actually focused on the protein in the cockroach milk. But this is where the popular story, as usual, oversimplifies a complex reality. Um, So proteins, as we all know, or maybe we don't, are made by living things to do all sorts of things, from building animal and plant bodies to manufacturing and transporting substances around those bodies And the 3D structure of every protein is different depending on the job it does. Finding out the actual shape of a protein is pretty tricky. They actually have to use X-ray crystallography, the the most commonly used way to to do it. Um, But it tells scientists a lot about how the protein works, how it does what it does. So we can identify a protein and say, this protein is definitely making this thing happen. But the shape of the protein tells them how it actually does that. And it's really, really important in the functionality of Mm -hmm. proteins. Um, So once they figure out the structure, they can look for variations in the shape and find better proteins to do the the same same thing. And they can actually harness them to do particular things. And, you know, this is why, um, you know, for example, washing powders have enzymes in them and enzymes are a particular protein Uh, They've added the enzymes because the enzymes are good at breaking down dirt particles and things like that, breaking down oils and fats, for example. Um, So there are certain proteins in cockroach milk that are able to carry non-water-soluble compounds in a water-based environment. The inside of the cockroach is basically water-based. Everything's dissolved in the water. They're gooey inside, (laughs) Manisha.
2: Oh, no, stop it.
0: These, these proteins uh, allow them to carry something like fat particles in the, uh, in the milk mm-hmm. and f- so that the, the developing larvae can have particular fats delivered to them because these proteins can carry the fat in a watery medium. So
1: emulsify it kind of like... Basically. Yeah.
0: And so, yeah, stop it interacting with the water so it can get moved through. Yeah. Um, so the shape of the proteins that do this job have a very literal pocket in them. They're actually pocket-shaped. They have a little Mm. pocket and the fats sit Mm. in the little pocket in the protein. Uh, And it's this protein that has the scientists interested in these scurrying little monsters. Um, By imitating the cockroach milk proteins, it's hoped that insoluble drugs and other chemicals can be delivered to human patients through injection into the bloodstream. Um, now, this kind of delivery system means that you can have lower doses of particular drugs because mm. it's not getting diluted in the blood, which is water-based. It's not. Um, it may also help them target particular organs or tissues where the drug might be needed rather than just dose oh, the whole body and it just yeah. sort of flows around until it gets the right thing. So rather than using a shotgun blast of a compound, which could damage other tissues, so things like chemotherapy, for yeah. example damages a whole lot of tissues other than the cancer cells it's trying to mm-hmm. um, treat because it's just getting pumped all around the body. Um, and if they have these sort of delivery proteins that we can deliver specific things to specific sites, then that will allow them to reduce the side effects of the drugs that they're, uh, that they're um, delivering. So, Overall, it's pretty unlikely that any insect milk will end up in your coffee anytime soon. Well, at least on purpose.
2: Oh, no, Um, no, no. Don't even make that a possibility. (laughs) Oh, God.
0: As usual, the mainstream media are just taking a scientific discovery and milking it for all it's worth. Oh, dear. Science. The final frontier. These are the voyages of Lost in Science, our ongoing mission to explain strange new words, to seek out new science and new explanations, to boldly go where no radio has gone before.
1: Okay, so a few months ago, I talked about rumors of a new particle that was to have been seen at the Large Hadron Collider at CERN in Switzerland. Do you remember that?
0: Yes. The the specific thing they were looking for now, because, you know, they found the Higgs boson, and now what are they going to do with that giant machine?
1: Yeah, so they were just basically crashing stuff into each other and hoping something new will pop out. And um, this particular one, which got everyone excited, was called the diphoton excess, as you probably remember that name. Oh, of course. Yes. Uh, that was it. Was called that because of an increase in the number of pairs of photons being produced at a certain energy, um, and it was very exciting because at the time it was a it was a hint that there was physics beyond the standard model of particle physics.
0: So the standard model works, sort of, as yeah. far as we know. The standard
1: there's... model is kind of the model that we've been had since the la- for the last forty years. That explains all the other particles we've seen. And the Higgs boson was the last piece of that. Um, but the standard model has lots of other things it doesn't explain. And, you know, theoretically, and also there's a few phenomena that are not explained by it.
0: And, and this diphoton excess is suggesting that maybe we can figure out some of that stuff now? Well,
1: it's just, you know, we need something new. We need some extra data. We need something that we doesn't fit into the standard model so that we can say, aha, Here's a clue to what what goes beyond the standard model. Okay, we, we haven't really got much clues. We know there has to be more, but we haven't got any clues.
0: We know there's, this. The, the, the truth is out there. We just don't know. Yeah, how, yeah. how to approach it. Yeah. Okay.
1: So yeah, like this is um, this was very exciting. Um, and this is where Tom, that the rumors were flying around. The um, the significance of this statistical significance was about three point nine sigma, which is three point nine standard deviations. That's about a one in ten thousand chance for being a fluke.
0: Oh, okay. So that's that's pretty good odds.
1: Well, yeah, I mean, you know, we've been talking I'm talking quite a bit lately about medical research mm. and how they often use, say, ninety five percent confidence level. So it's like a one in twenty chance of it yeah. being a fluke, and that's considered good enough to you know to base. Treatments on in medicine. It's good so, enough
0: for biology and medicine. Yeah, yeah. So physics is a bit more. Well, precise. physics
1: we, we want it more than that. Yeah. So normally they a discovery has to be at least five sigma, which is like more like one in three point five million chance of being a fluke. Okay. And this is because there is. I mean, they're very precise experiments, but they do a lot of particle collisions, and so there's a lot of events there. There's a lot of chance that unlikely events will happen when you're doing that many. Mm. That many and, things.
0: And, and I guess the measurements they're actually taking are tiny. So that there could be all sorts of interference and stuff as well.
1: Oh, well, they try. You know, it's there is kind of a background, but that's not environmental background. That is just from the actual interactions themselves. So yep. it's not, yeah, interference so much. It is more, yeah, in the fact that you had got statistically you're making so many different, taking so many measurements that you're going to find weird things happen. Mm-hmm. Uh, and so, yeah, they basically wanted to collect more data to be sure this was a real thing. And they've collected more data and it has unfortunately gone away. Oh. Yeah, so there is no no more part, new particle at the, the diphoton excess. Um, so that's the way it goes in physics sometimes. And this is why they're so cautious about these things and why it is, you know, you do have to get that, that
0: level of, of statistics to be sure of things. And, and that's, yeah, that's so so this didn't meet the, the usual standard of, of uh, probability. No. And turns out that that was pretty accurate. Yeah, and like there's
1: something like, there are something like. Yeah, so there was something like five hundred papers written to try and explain what this new particle might have been. You know, so the theorists jumped on it because it wasn't predicted at all. Mm. Um, but yeah, it was five hundred different people came up with explanations for what it could be. I think at, I think at the time I remember saying that of the most exciting sentence I saw about it was the idea there might be a portal to the dark sector, which I thought was a great phrase. But that that
0: that does sound a lot more exciting than. Yeah than physics usually does. But
1: that kind of explains why we're looking for something like this. So now it's going to be back to the drawing board um, to try and find some some new experimental data. But because we, like I said, we know that there is something beyond the standard model and we have some good clues for why there is something beyond the standard model. Um, there is, for instance, gravity, which mm. we are pretty certain exists. Yeah. That's not described by the standard model. Uh, there is dark matter and dark energy. They are also things we are pretty sure exist. Um, they're not included in the standard model.
0: No, so this is this is kind of related to what do they call it the Grand Unified Theory? Ah, uh, Grand Unified Theory is a specific thing, but yeah, it's trying to find some sort of a connection between things like gravity and things like particle physics. Yeah, um, gravity is normally uh,
1: something like string theory, like a theory of everything is often called. Yeah, yeah. Um, so yeah, there is still a lot more to be discovered, and then there's a couple of other things. Uh, one that you may not be too familiar with is uh, neutrinos. The
0: only, so the only time I've heard of neutrinos is generally in Star Trek. Uh, when they can't figure out a way out of the storyline that they've written, something to do with neutrinos, and they fix it.
1: Yeah, well, you may remember a few years ago, there was um, you would have heard of them when there was a, um, a controversial experiment that seemed to show they moved faster than the speed of light. Oh, yes, Yeah, of course. Turned out to be someone just hadn't plugged their equipment in properly. <laughs> Um, and it all was not a real thing. But that's where most people heard of neutrinos, because the idea yeah. there might be some particle that goes faster than speed of light. Um, turns out that's not true. Like I said, they don't move fast in the speed of light. In fact, we now believe that they move slightly slower than the speed of light, um, because they have uh, a very small non-zero mass. So things, because of Einstein's theory of relativity, anything that has zero mass has to move at the speed of light. Anything that has more than zero mass, has some mass, has to go slower than the speed of light. Okay. And this is a big deal because the standard model, which was the, the basic thing to explain the stuff we knew at the time, had neutrinos as having no mass. And it works very well with having zero mass. Uh, so the fact that we have found they have a mass means that there is something wrong with the standard model in that sense. Uh, and the reason we know that they have uh, non-zero mass is because people have measured that they can change from one type to another. Okay, So there are three kinds of neutrinos um, relating to various sort of other types of particles there are. They're called flavours of neutrinos. And um, they have different masses, but the masses don't exactly match the flavours, which means neutrinos can change flavour from one type to another. And we can measure this by firing neutrinos over long distances and seeing how they, they change on, the, on route. Interesting. Yes. Um, they're also all left-handed. Um, Now, what this means, how can the neutrino be left-handed? So these particles are spinning, right? Yeah. Okay, so if you hold out your left hand, and imagine that neutrino is moving in the direction of your thumb. Yep. They rotate, they spin around kind of axially, the way your fingers would curl around the the thumb if you made a fist. Okay. Okay? So you can all see what I'm doing there. Um, So all the neutrinos... Uh, left-handed like that um and this is perfectly fine if they're moving at the speed of light because they will always be going the same direction they'll always be spinning around that way however if they go slower than the speed of light that means you could in theory move faster than a neutrino and if you look back at it you would see that it was actually going backwards and so spinning the wrong way so they have to be right-handed neutrinos as well if that they are if they're um got a non-zero mass. So this complicates things because um, we've got to explain where the right-handed neutrinos come from. And the right-handed neutrinos they may be some new particle we haven't actually observed them yet and so they it's possible also that they could be the missing particle of dark matter um, which would help us explain two things for the price of one.
0: Well, that's always a good bargain.
1: It is. It actually could be three things because there's been a recent experiments done that have been announced lately, where they've been doing these experiments where they're trying to watch neutrinos oscillating, and what they found is that. The neutrinos and their antiparticles, which are called antineutrinos. Mm-hmm. So like there's matter and antimatter um, annihilate each other when they meet. Um, so neutrinos have anti-neutrinos and they oscillate a slightly different rate to the neutrinos, which suggests that there is an asymmetry between matter and antimatter at least for neutrinos. And this could be a big deal because the other sort of missing thing that standard model doesn't explain is why there is more matter than antimatter in the universe, which I think you'll also agree is quite a big deal. Because if there were
0: equal amounts of matter and antimatter, then we wouldn't be here Yeah, pretty much the universe would have just annihilated itself as soon as it started exactly yeah. so
1: it's possible that there is a slight asymmetry there and that may also help explain why there is something rather than nothing which is a good thing too so um yeah i guess you know in the with the lack of other finding new particles um you know maybe the the neutrinos are the place to look so you know watch out for the the, the smallest particles that we know of, that they may be the the big answer to, to solving the, the universe.
0: Isn't that always the way?
1: mm
2: Takes place on an island in the Torres Strait. Um, On the northeastern edge of the strait, there's an island called Brumble Key, and it's actually the northmost point of land of Australia, which is something I just learned. So it's just 55 kilometers from the shore of Papua New Guinea, and um, Brumble, Brumble Key is the only known home, or at least it was the only known home for the Brumbo-Key Malomus Malomus rubicola. Unfortunately, this small rodent was declared extinct earlier this year in June. Um, its last documented sighting was in two thousand and nine, and there was recently a research initiative led by the Queensland government and the University of Queensland to determine if this, if there was still a population of Brumbuky. Malomis, Malomis on um, Brumble Key, and um, this research initiative was led. Sorry, i will start that again. Uh, probably one of the most devastating parts of this story was the fact that this is the first known case of mammal extin- ex- sorry extinction due to anthropogenic climate change. So human caused climate change, which is really sad. So
0: what what changed in their environment that that um, that made them go extinct?
2: Yeah, so actually, the the researchers it was Ian Gunther from sorry Ian Gunther from the um, Queensland Government of Threatened Species, um, the Queensland Government's Threatened Species Unit, Dr. Luke Long and Natalie Waller from the uh, University of Queensland, and what they're uh, suggesting is that the population was driven to extinction due to a rise in sea levels. Um, according to their report, there were high tides and surging seawaters that traveled inland across the island, destroying the animals' habitat and food resources.
0: So they lived close enough to the shoreline that the rising sea level and storm surges just wiped them out.
2: Exactly. Wow. So basically, um, basically the island in itself is sinking. The water around it's rising so much that um, any land above the um, above the sea level is is being shrinking is shrinking yeah um in 2014 the researchers conducted this in-depth extensive survey of the island but they didn't find any evidence of the animal there was no there were no traces of scats or tracks they had camera traps up so basically cameras to take photos um and there were no there was no evidence on the cameras that of the um, rodent they also put out live traps to try to capture an individual there, and had absolutely no luck in capturing the individual. The amount of um, land that was left at that time on the, um, on the island was kind of equivalent to a football field size. So they tried really, really hard to find this uh, rodent and were really unsuccessful. Um, by that point in 2014, the livable hab- um, habitat was the smallest ever recorded, and their refuge sites, like in rock caves or crevices, they were slowly disappearing and it's estimated that the area um, above, the area of the quay above high tide had decreased from four hectares, which it was in 1998, to about two and a half hectares in 2014. So really just the islands just sinking. Around the globe between um, 1901 and 2010, the sea levels have risen about Uh, 20 centimeters but between um, 1993 and 2014 the sea levels around the Torres Straits actually risen at a rate that's twice the global average so you can imagine all of these little islands are gonna be feeling the um, feeling the the threat of the sea levels rising around them the researchers took um, a while to publish their findings because they found pretty like if you're not finding any individuals it's a pretty conclusive um, or it's a pretty strong suggestion that the animal no longer exists there, especially if they were in such high numbers before and you had been able to track them before. But they took their time to go through the research because they wanted to really be sure of what was going on. And after their extensive research, which took about two years, um, they realized, or they confidently can um, conclude that it is due to these rising sea levels and that it's a human-caused sort of um, chain of events. Um, they released this, uh, report earlier this year in June and now they're encouraging the government to, uh, change the listing of this malomus to extinct from endangered. The researchers, however, do note that there is a slight chance that there is a, as yet unknown, um, population on the, on, in Papua New Guinea, around the Fly River Delta area, um, and they only think this because it was suspected that this uh, Malomus may have arrived on Rumble Rumble Key, on, f- like on rafting debris, ages and ages ago. So there may be a remnant population in Papua New Guinea, but for now, it's just this population, the only known population of the Malomus, has been officially uh, reported as extinct.
0: It's pretty terrible news.
2: I know, and it's like it adds to Australia's high um, extinction rate, mm-hmm. but then it's also really terrifying that it's the first casualty, the first of what will be many um, mammal casualties due to anthropogenic climate change.
0: I mean the other thing is even if there is a, a you know sister population somewhere, there's not much point putting them back on the island. No, because, because it's there's it's no sinking. habitat left. Yeah, yeah, exactly. No. So the, it is, the point is that on, on that island they're gone, yeah. and they're not going to be able to mm. get back. Yeah,
2: and that island's actually used by shorebirds and by sea turtles as well for as like a, a like a nesting habitat. Mm-hmm. But if that doesn't exist there, then there goes their ha- nesting habitat as well.
0: that's all we've got time for on this episode of lost in science thanks for tuning in and joining us lost in science is recorded at the studios of 3cr in melbourne and broadcast across australia on the community radio network with the financial assistance of the community broadcasting foundation if you want to talk to us talk back to us uh you can get in touch we have a gmail account lost at gmail uh you can also find us on twitter and on the facebook Uh, And if that's not enough Lost in Science for you, you can always tune in again next week where the team will once again get Lost Lost in Science! Science!